Welcome to the Christine Spray Show, bringing you insights and stories from successful CEOs to help grow your business and increase your revenue. The Christine Spray Show is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Christine Spray. Hi, I'm Christine Spray, and welcome to another episode of the Christine Spray Show. For this episode, our guest host is David Spray, who's talking to Dylan Schrader, the COO of Ledge Lounger, a fast-growing, high-end, outdoor and pool product manufacturing company in Houston, Texas. Ledge Lounger has grown 50 times since Dylan joined the company seven years ago. Dave and Dylan talk about the pros and cons of that rapid growth and the hidden opportunities in that growth challenge. Dave is a big fan of their products, and in their discussion, they drill down into some of the most innovative products they have on what makes them so unique. Much of the company's new product ideas result from being close to their customers and listening to their customers. Dylan is quite a car enthusiast, and you'll also find out what his dream car is. If you are a fast-growing organization... Or if you ever wondered what it would be like to be a part of a company growing more than 100% annually, this episode has some great insights for you. Now let's get to the show. Hi, Dylan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. So let's let's kind of start at the beginning. Are you from Houston originally? You know, I think I've been long, here long enough to where I can say that. But no, I my my father was in the oil industry, and so we we traveled around quite a bit, traveled around the world quite a bit, and uh, didn't move to the U.S. until I was about twelve years old. But you know, raised more or less here in the middle school, high school age, and then went to college in, in uh, College Station. So Texas, what I like to say, that old Davy Crockett, you know, born and raised. I wanted to be here, but was not. Got here quick as you could, huh? Got here as quick as I could. That's right. Did you pick up any other languages in, in your foreign travels? You know, I did. I think when you're younger, you can pick that stuff up pretty quickly. I knew Bahasa Indonesian for uh, a short period of time, and then I started learning J- Japanese. And when, you know, I, I guess my brain's not wired for it, but I, I would lose, when I started learning a new language, I would lose the old one. Uh, okay. But, you know, in the household, we would speak English and so I still kind of can write, you know, some of that stuff, but no. And then I started learning Spanish, so I lost all of the other uh, languages. So can you still, you know, sort of like the Japanese? Can you, you know, still understand a few words or yeah, like I can if still you hear it? Yeah, I can still understand a few words. I I can still write it and read it, but you know, they with the speed and no practice, I, it, it's hard to stay, you know, good at it. Yeah, I can imagine. And how's your Spanish? Is it pretty good? I like to call it bar Spanish. You know, I can uh, I can <laughs> conversate how I need to, but when people, you know, are in conversationally, people move pretty quickly, so I have to ask them to slow down, but I can work my way around uh, the conversation and being in Houston, it's um you kind of need to know some, so Yeah, I, uh, I I I can get around, but probably not as fluently as yours as you can. <laughs> So you you went to to Texas A and M University, and I believe you uh, received a uh, engineering degree in aerospace engineering. Is that right? That's right. I, it took me a little bit longer than for the four years, but got out in four and a half, and we, uh, 
it, it wasn't originally what I wanted to do in, you know, I really liked uh, architecture and civil engineering. So they just didn't really have a track for architectural engineering and aerospace was right next to it. And I said, that sounds cool. I'm also into cars and F1 racing. So the aerodynamics was, was a big draw for me, but certainly didn't take my career that direction as I, I use it as a hobby now. So. Okay. So, but you did put your degree to work though. It sounds like when you went to work for Southwest Airlines. Yeah, I, it was a little bit of a mixture. So coming out of school, my first role was in the systems engineering world. So more uh, mechanical. I was on the line with the mechanics, uh, fixing airplanes with Boeing when there was uh, when there was repetitive issues with airplanes. That's kind of where my engineering degree kicked in is, okay, how do we solve it? And so it was a lot of the mechanical side on less uh, aerodynamics and and fluid flow, which is what I learned predominantly mm-hmm. in school. But I like to tinker, you know, and work with my hands quite a bit. So it was a, it was a perfect job for me coming out of college. Did you ever meet Herb? You know, he, he several times. He is not one of those guys that's uh, you know when you're walking around the halls of Southwest, you could he would always have a glass of whiskey and a cigar in his hand, so you could smell where he was in the building. Um, <laughs> And, you know, you, you would run into him all the time and he had really compelling people. He remembered your name. You wouldn't see him for a year and then he's meeting thousands and thousands of people, but he would remember your name and know exactly the conversation that you had before. So several wow. times and it was always, he was one of those ins- pretty inspiring people to chat with. Yeah, he, I really love his, uh, love his whole story. And, uh, and I think the world was a better place when he was still around with his glass of whiskey and a cigar. That's right. So, so then why don't we like to, to kind of skip across your next couple of gigs when you left Southwest. And I'd like to get to the, to your current gig that I'm really fascinated by. And I've been fortunate enough to do a tour there. So, it's a, you know, good story. I would say I, I threw out my career, you know, I went technical and decided that wasn't the wasn't with the angle that I wanted to go long term. In other words, it wasn't the direction that I wanted my career to head. And so I, you know, I did a lot of business consulting shortly after the the Southwest um, tenure there. And you know, Chris, who is the CEO and founder of Ledge Lounger, he and I kind of been best friends, brothers since we were twelve. He was the you know the first guy that I. I met when I moved to the United States, kind of one of my first friends. And, you know, we grew up middle school, high school, you know, pretty much doing, you know, working in the neighborhood and, you know, trying to make a dollar here or there. And so it was kind of a, we were almost tied to the hip when we were younger. And then we went off to college and I had accepted a role in North Carolina, kind of going back to work for one of the presidents at Southwest Airlines in the past. And, you know, I had accepted the role and I was getting, you know, I was packing my bag and Chris and I had just been talking. He, you know, he was doing a lot of cool things in the pool industry and and Ledge Lounger was just kind of there. You know, he had created this really neat product, but it had, it, it was selling, but it hadn't just kind of steamrolled as, as what it's doing now. And so, you know, it was, you know, we got together and we would always go to lunch and always hang out on the weekends. And as you know, I was moving to North Carolina, it was kind of a, Hey, you want to help me grow this thing? And so that was back in about 2015. Okay. And, you know, that it's where it started. You know, I came in and he was, he's really talented on the marketing and the sales side of the business. And I was like, look, I'll handle, when you get a commitment, I'll take it over. I'll build the business. I'll scale the manufacturing. I'll get it going to where we can actually make this thing. 
And so it's a really neat product. It's a, you know, lifestyle brand is what I'd like to call it. Uh, that's what we like to call it around here. Um, and it's, it's been fun. I mean, we've had a really um, aggressive growth trajectory and so learning something new every day. Now, have you been able to use your uh, aerodynamics and fluid flow experience at all? <laughs> I'm guessing not. Yeah, it's a funny question. You know, I use the structural engineering component of all that. You know, as we build new products, I, I head up kind of the engineering side of what we do here. So not as uh, glamorous as, you know, aerospace engineering and airplanes, but, you know, pool furniture works, uh, works great, too. It needs the uh, same uh, structural eye. Yeah, understood. Well, well, let's just talk a bit about the the furniture for folks that aren't familiar with it. Is this uh, is this kind of like the the patio furniture you buy at Walmart, like ten dollar folding chairs, or is this a little different with a little different use case? Uh, it's certainly a different use case. Um, you know, we it, how we started. It was the market was generally the affluent type of customer that that really could afford a custom pool, and it was a niche uh, market originally and the product is it's a high-end product it takes it takes a little bit of a a, a technical skill set to make and it's higher priced because it's you know it's just not a cheap product so certainly differentiates us a little bit from the, the walmart uh, costco type of brand but you know we as we're growing you know there's a big market and so we're trying to just diversify our product line so that you know our demographic changes quite a bit sure and so, and just to help the, the listeners better understand it, as I understand it, the pool was originally designed or the furniture was designed to actually sit in a pool rather than on a pool deck. Is that right? Yep. So there's a, there's a lot of nomenclature in the industry, but there's a tanning ledge, shallow, super shallow area of the pool that, you know, generally children are around or, you know, you, you don't spend as much time in the deep end. So you're kind of hanging around this tanning ledge, shallow area of the pool. And so in order to better leverage that space, you know, these chairs really do, or these products really do kind of help you do that. It's uh, half in the water, half out of the water. So you can get the experience of uh, really comfortable furniture, but also being really close to the water. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting that so I guess a couple of things. One, the product has to be heavy enough to not float. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, interesting enough, that's kind of, it is, we have some patent, you know, IP around that particular piece of the furniture in order to keep it down on the ledge. We have a patented technology that uh, allows the weight above the water line, keep it down on the water. And, you know, it's a plastic piece of furniture so inherently that will float so using you know our technical patent it, it kind of gives us a leg up and you know keeps that product on a ledge so that you can keep enjoying it and it also and it's also designed to just stay in the water indefinitely correct without the, the chlorine rotting it or anything that's correct yeah we, we spent a lot of time you know just testing materials that would uh, endure the harshness of the environment. So, you know, you get the saltwater pools, the chlorinated pools, not a lot of color, not a lot of product can sit around that environment and, um, you know, endure, have longevity. So that's kind of how we designed it. And it took some time, but we got a lot of vendors and we got a lot of partners in the industry that really, uh, really know what they're doing. Yeah, that's great. It's I've been fortunate enough to take a tour of the facility and it's and it's really cool. We even at one point we had a couple of your products. We had a couple of your big pillows, but we weren't really using them. We'd never used them. They were still in the packaging. 
and uh, I think your inventory was so low, you uh, struck a deal with my wife to uh, to retrieve them from uh, from our house where they were taking up closet space and we weren't really using them. So let's talk a bit about the growth. I know you and and Chris have have both had some recognition, and the company's had some recognition for growth. What can you share publicly as far as you know how much you all have grown since you joined, either in terms of employees or revenues or you know whatever metrics are have been shared prior? Yeah, I think you know since well, I guess when I came on board, I mean we're fifty times bigger than that. Wow, we've done a lot, and, and you know, COVID was a big, a big eye opener for us. That you know, the market people decided they, they wanted to spend more time outdoors, and you know, fancy enough that is our that our brand. You know, we like we like being outside, and we want to build products that inspire people to go enjoy out the outdoors. And you know, with, before COVID, we we had decent growth. You know, we were doubling our headcount um, year over year, but it wasn't until about 2019, we had about 30 employees and quickly, you know, 2020, we, we, we did what we could with the, you know, the 30 to 40 employees. And, you know, now we're, we're building out a 200 man organization that is pretty robust. I think, you know, it's a, it's a testament to the growth of the product and the brand and the, the products that we're releasing, but also, the people that we have are, you know, you f- there's the old adage, you find the right people for a business and you know, nothing can stop you. It's really been, it's really resonated here because it's all because of the people, you know, we have great products, mm-hmm. but those products have always been great. It's just the people that have helped us get here. And, you know, we have 150 now and we have, I think about 60 open roles that we're still trying to hire for. So. Okay. Are you still there? I'm still here. Yeah. Um, sorry, I was just momentarily distracted. Um, and you all just moved into a new facility not too long ago, right? That's correct. We big step for us was uh, really investing in our infrastructure. We were piecing it together, you know, the first three four years, and realized you know we needed to. This was a sustainable business, and that was our trajectory. We wanted to you know keep something that would long live us and. So we invested in a pretty decent facility just on the west side of Houston and went from about 15,000 square foot to 80,000 square foot and we're growing out of it already. So it's going to be going to be an interesting next couple of years. Wow. So what are, so does hiring fall under your umbrella as well? Right now we have, so we have a, a smaller HR department and they take most of that on as we just based on the need. I think it falls in every department to kind of pitch in a little bit to hire their specific requirements. So while we do have a pretty you know robust HR team with processes and procedures that it, it, we would almost need a full recruiting arm of the business and we don't have that. So we, we all just kind of pitch in and, and make it work. Okay. And do you all have any open positions at the moment? We do. We have about 50 or 60 open positions. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, what spanning, type of positions are, are open? Yeah, spanning all the way from you know the administrative side of the business, sales, all the way to manufacturing and fulfillment and everywhere in between, engineering, product development. It's uh, I think every department has a open role. Wow. And has this been kind of exacerbated by, what do they call it, the great resignation or would you have had these problems anyway, just because of the growth trajectory? Do you think? You know, I got. I'm knocking on wood. I would say we've been tremendously fortunate that we haven't 
had much of this great resignation impact to our business. Our culture is unique, and I would say it's you know a testament to the people wanting to be here. So not as much departures, but I think the growth is really driving a lot of the open roles. We rolling and continuously growing, continuously building, adding new shifts, and those are that's really it, trying to service our customers the best possible way. It takes a little bit of manpower support to get there. Oh, I didn't realize you all are running multiple shifts. Yeah, on the manufacturing and fulfillment side, we we'd like to run twenty four hours um, because the demand is there. But you know, we're finding alternatives to ensure that we can get the product made and delivered to the customer. Okay, yeah, my understanding when you're growing as fast as you all are, that your two challenges are finding the people and just keeping up with the demand. Is that the case with you all? Yeah, just keeping up a- with demand. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the demand is, it's straightforward, right? You know, you have somebody who wants something and you deliver it, doing it on a massive scale to where, you know, you're scaling a business to where your operating expenses kind of start to depart from your your income line. You know, there's no point in running a $100 million business at the same profitability as a $10 million business. Sure. Uh, the 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 big piece of that is just scaling the internal infrastructure, which is I would say one of the harder things to do. So getting everybody on the same page, uh, making sure everybody understands the direction and the goals, but also, you know, standardizing things, you know, making it simplified for our folks that they can repeat over and over again. And you don't have to worry about the the firefighting and the, mm-hmm. you know, the things that do distract you from just performing. And so that's, I think that's been the hard part is getting the administrative notion of the, the business put together so that we can continue and scale and get to, you know, the next 3x, 5x type of growth that we're trying to get to. Okay. So let's talk a bit about the products. Like I said, I was so fascinated when I was out to your facility because as I understand it, you know, you started with the the ledge products. What's the shallow part of the pool called again? The tanning ledge? The tanning ledge, yeah. So you had the products for that. And as people can imagine, you had you know, like, you know, reclining type of chaise lounge type chairs and, you know, other products from the water. But when I was at your facility, I discovered you all have a whole product selection for outside the water that I found fascinating. Like you all had a a ping pong table that was designed to just be able to leave out in the sun and it just, you know, lasts a long time. Can you talk to me about some of those products? Yeah. So, you know, about three or four years ago, you know, Chris and I were you know, doing some strategizing for the business and where we wanted to go. And we knew that the market for in-pool furniture is, you know, it, it's smaller than the, the out-of-pool furniture, right? Billions sure. of dollars of market available globally on you know, more outside the pool type of an environment. And so we, you know, getting into the, you know, the product development and what could we do and, you know, what could we do quick? We... It, it kind of snowballed. You know, we started developing the Adirondacks or the, you know, the outdoor, you know, patio chases, you know, that surround the pool. But in in conjunction, we were trying to build this brand that um, is synonymous with outdoor lifestyle enjoyment. And in in doing that, you you mentioned our ping pong table games, outdoor games are, you know, a big piece of enjoying your time outside, right? You have the the cornhole, you have the washer sets, and certainly the ping pong table has been a crazy demanded seller. 
it's fascinating because it's a big piece of furniture, but you know, once you pr- get that, bring that lifestyle and the product quality that we can offer together, I think that it's really, you know, really been a huge demand creator for us. And uh, it's kind of helped us on the lifestyle piece, but also what else can we provide for our customers? Because they're asking for that type of environment and and we know that we can do it. So it's really, you know, oiled up our product development mindsets on what can we do, but it's been fun. Yeah. I think that ping pong table is, I, I can't make enough of them and they're, they're a hot seller. They are so cool. And I would encourage anyone to go to your website, Ledge Loungers, L-E-D-G-E-L-O-U-N-G-E-R-S.com. And the other cool thing is you can get it in all these different colors. And the one you have on the website, it's an all white table with a white frame with a blue net. Of course, it's a, I think it's a rigid net. And then the, the paddles are white with blue handles. So it's really, the colors are really just, that they really pop. And I'm guessing that they can coordinate with their other furniture as well, I'm presuming. Yeah, but, you know, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that. We, as we're growing, we're not losing touch on the customization side of things. And, you know, people really want to curate their backyards to, you know, a specific type of style. And we can do that, you know, it's a different... Uh, it's a different offering than most the most outdoor furniture manufacturing. But David, you know, it's funny the the ping pong table. We we're starting to see a lot of people using it as outdoor dining tables too. So, oh you know, sure, because it's yeah, so yeah, because yeah, it's, it's big and it's flat, and you know, there's a you can put the chairs around it, and, and you just pop the net off, and it, it duels as as a nice uh, conversating piece. That's awesome. And so, do you have a sense of what that ping pong table weighs? I do. I think you know, there's a couple of accessories and things that you can add to it that make it, you know, it could add it a little, make it a little heavier, but you know, we're in the four, four to 500 pound range just because of how much material is there and how big it is. That's awesome. Cause if somebody just thinks about your classic Walmart folding ping pong table, you know, it maybe weighs, I don't know, 50, 75 pounds or something. And uh, yeah. And the, and to give you people a sense of, of just the quality I see that your your MSRP on that is several thousand dollars, but it's a it's literally a lifetime ping pong table, isn't it? Hundred percent. I mean, you'll probably outgrow your outdoor furniture before you need to replace the ping pong table or anything that we we sell. So you'll probably want to change the colors or do something completely different, and our products will still be in good shape. Do you? So you guys have been making this furniture, I guess, for approaching a decade, right? Is when you Chris first started. Yeah, decade on the in pool product. So predominantly the uh, you know the tanning ledge pieces. We just recently released our the patio lifestyle products. I think it was probably 2019, 2018 is when we first really started dabbling in that market. Okay, and do you have a sense of what the lifetime of this furniture is? I mean, is it you know is ten years even enough that you're starting to see any significant deterioration? I mean, you, I mean, it, it largely depends on your location. I think that we, you know, we've seen people that still have their product eight, 10 years, 12 years later, you know, the first ones that Chris installed back in 2010, 2011, those are still out there. The, our warranty, you know, we do have a limited warranty, but it's a, it's largely eight to 10 years. And, you know, we'd like to call ourselves a pretty decent customer service brand. The, the products last a while, but, you know, we'd like to ensure that level of satisfaction continues on past that. Yeah, that's great. 
What do you, what are one or two things that you really love about your role with the company? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I would say I'm extremely fortunate in what I do. I've never had a day in the last seven years where I just wake up and I don't want to go to work. Building this, uh, help build, helping build this company has been just a, a dream come true. And I would say the best part about it is we can stay pretty high level and strategic and think about where the company is going. And then also really connect with the customers on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's the great part about the business is every day can be a new day or there's something going on that day that you can you know choose to get into. And we've built the business around that exposure at all levels of the business. And so I think the diversity and what it is my day would be if I decided that. But you know, the cool part about my role is looking forward that three to five to seven years to say, what do we need to be doing now in order to, you know, perpetuate this killer brand that we've got and these awesome products? How do we, you know, share it with the rest of the world, literally? So I'd say that's the best part. Mm-hmm. Now I can hear your, your enthusiasm, even after seven years, the fact that you still are excited to get up and go to work every day is, is a great thing. When I look at your customer list, I mean, my goodness, it's a who's who of, of, of high end. I'm just watching the scrolling list. So you've got the Golden Nugget, Hilton, Sandals, Royal Caribbean, Hyatt. I mean, they, they're scrolling and I can't even keep up with them all. What, how, I guess, tell us, give us a little background on those relationships. Cause my understanding is, Chris comes from a pool building background and he and he just kind of stumbled into this idea. So I'm guessing your original buyers were, you know, just people who were buying swimming pools from Chris's family business. What kind of prompted this shift into more uh commercial and uh lodging? You know, I think it was largely demand, you know. Just kind of word of mouth, you mean somebody would, you know, the CEO of of Hyatt was at somebody's pool party and saw the furniture and wanted some? Yeah, and and we have an aggressive sales team. Um, I'd say... You know, the uh, Alexis, one of our first, our first sales sales rep, she, she wanted to share these products, you know, with the world, just like the rest of us. And I think that it started, you know, early on where, you know, one hospitality customer would, you know, buy into the idea, you know, the early on, there wasn't so much of a desire to build these pools with tanning ledges. And it's kind of come on as of late, you know, you had the beach entries and the just standard showers at the pool, but the really innovative hospitality companies would, you know, be on that cutting edge of the pool. And, you know, that just having the spot for our, you know, our signature chase, it transforms the, you know, your hospitality guests, you know, when you're out there, you want to spend time by the pool. And, but I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, the hospitality world is a really small piece of our, our, our business, the, the, the whole COVID, you know, the, since 2019, 2020, late 2019, 2020, we've seen the kind of the commercial world pause a lot of their, their outdoor spending mm-hmm. and uh, it's came on drastically as of late. So we think that there's a pretty good runway on the commercial side, but you know, that's uh it, it we have partnerships with a lot of these hotel chains and a lot of these hospitality resort chains and I'm excited to see what they, they, they do here. There's a big, there's a, I think there's a big desire to revamp their outdoor space because that's what a lot of customers are, are traveling for. Sure. I can imagine that. So, so that's interesting that the commercial side is a relatively small part of your business. So is it the, the residential side that's still the bulk of the, the demand? 
It is. You know, we have omni-channel is what we like to call ourselves. We, we sell directly to the consumer, but also have to protect our dealers and our, our partners that, you know, got us here. The pool builders and the interior designers, those are fundamental to our business. But, it, you know, the direct to the consumer, the homeowner, those are, that's the, the bulk of our business. Okay. And you talk about protecting those dealers and you just, you, is that just kind of a traditional strategy where you've got your MSRP, you encourage your dealers to sell at that so that if wherever customers buy, they're paying the same price, but the dealers are just getting, uh, you know, a discounted uh, wholesale price. Is that kind of the idea? That's correct. We want to incentivize them to, you know, sell more, expand their breadth, but also you know, add that little bit of extra value to their business. And if we can do that, then we'll, we'll, you know, cut them in on the deal. Okay. Give us a sense of like, like the biggest residential project you can think of that y'all have ever done. Could you just give us a sense of like how many pieces and like what the total cost was for the project? Gosh, you know, I, I, um, I know that might have been a question for Chris since he's you know more on the the marketing side, but well, it's funny, you know, as we were smaller, and I think twenty nineteen was that year. Twenty eighteen was that year. I remember, you know, we our offices were joined, joined, but we we could you know hear each other in the other room, and and I remember a customer calling us, and you know, affluent customer has you know wanted to completely outfit his entire backyard, and he had a big space. And we hadn't yet made a lot of the products. We were still kind of, you know, in the design mode and, and, and ideating around what we really could bring. And, you know, this customer really helped us. You know, we, I remember it vividly. It was probably a 150 piece. Um, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, massive. I remember we were small enough at the time where I didn't have a big crew. You know, we were figuring things out along the way. So I, I packed everything into an 18 wheeler. I had my machinist who was helping me manufacture a lot of this stuff. We shut down the machines. We got on an airplane and we flew to New Jersey. And and this guy's outdoor space was just in, 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 incredible. Lot really you know beautiful space. He had built it so that he could have these large family events. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we built probably six specific day bed cabana wet bar spaces for him all of the indoor in pool furniture and all you know the adirondacks and things and dining tables it was a big installation but also you know a great customer i mean he knew that he was getting you know first prototype stuff and he, we would be you know optimizing it along the way he was just an he was an awesome customer and you know I give kudos to Chris, you know, selling these ideas to this guy was probably pretty tough, but you know, he bought in and, you know, I, I imagine I, now that you bring it up, I'd really like to reach out to him and see how that outdoor space is looking because it was pretty cool when we left. So I'm guessing that was a six figure order. Is that, or, or was it maybe even close to seven figures? No, you know, I can't recall. It was, I think it was really close to that six figure mark. Okay. So, so you mentioned that customer's input. Is that a typical way that your product product line has grown it is from customer suggestions or is it, you know, internal ideas or kind of a mix of both? You know, that's a great question. I think we're we are still really honing in on how to be the most efficient product ideator, innovator, you know, product managers. You, know, you cannot that's one thing that a lot of companies do is they forget 
they can strategize all day long and they can build a you know a business day to day. But if you forget your customer, you're losing a big mouthpiece. And I would say, you know, at least 50% of our product development and our, our new ideas come from just communicating with the customer, just going on site and having, you know, getting on the ground with our salespeople. You really start to listen to, they, you know, they don't have the idea of what to build. They just say, this is what they want. And from, a, from an environment standpoint, and so just listening to their pain points and listening to their desires, you can really start to define what type of product solution we can offer in that area. And so it's a big, I would say it's, you know, it, companies really need to hone in on that. What are their customers saying and feeling and thinking? Because it'll help propel your business. It's that really that, that sixth sense type of mentality that a business needs to have. No, I, I, I agree. That's great. What, let's see, I've got a few questions left. Let me think about the order. What, if you could go back in time and give advice to your 25-year-old self, what advice might you give? <laughs> I like that question. I know there's the cliche, right? Your hard work pays off. Um, but for me, you know, specifically, I'm a super competitive individual and no one can compete more with me than myself. And so <laughs> if I were to look back when I was 25, I'd say, you know, cut yourself some slack a little bit when you, you know, when you make a mistake, it's a, you know, I, I would get down on myself a little bit for making mistakes or doing things that I, you know, that just didn't work out. But now as I'm older, I'm going, you know what, every single one of those events was just a kind of a notch on the, you know, the belt loop more or less, you know, and getting to where I am today. And it's those failures and those experiences that really hone where you, where, who you become. And so it's great. You, know, you can be down for you know a couple minutes or a couple you know hours, but I use it as as fuel for the next thing. And I look at that now. I would say when I was twenty five, that was a it was a big hurdle for me. So you, I think in summary, you're saying your advice would be to instead of thinking about outcomes different than you planned as failures, consider them feedback loops and iteration cycles. Yeah, most certainly, you know, I, without sounding so, you know, cliche and, you know, these, a lot of these you know, motivational books, it's, it's, it, there is no substitute for failures and turning them into learnings. Speaking of that, let's think about a challenge that you've had with the business and what's something that, you know, seemed like a really big challenge, but ended up having some hidden opportunities. Can you think of uh, an example of that? Yeah, I mean, I think I would allude to similar to what I just was talking about. You know, the day-to-day grind. You know, we're, there's and we're fortunate, right? There are good problems to have as far as fast as we're growing. There's a lot of adversity that we're seeing on a day-to-day basis, and it's difficult. And I think that you know, when you see through the the forest, right? You, it there your pillars are your customers and the hidden opportunities, you know, you get wrapped up in those day-to-day challenges when, you know, your solutions are right in front of your face, they're your customers, their people are inherently good, you know, and if you tap into that and you just keep an open dialogue with your customer base, it makes things just make sense. You, you end up solving problems better. You have a better mentality around them. And that's, that's just a hidden opportunity is really 
they're going to help you propel your business forward, whether you think it or not, just by having a conversation. Mm-hmm. No, I like it. So here's a, a question, a hypothetical for you that you've maybe never thought about. Let's say that at the end of 2022, Chris comes to you and says, hey, you know, the company had a really great year and, uh, and, and Dylan, you were, you just did a fantastic job. So for a bonus this year, what I'd like to do is I'd like to buy you a car and I'll, money's no object. I'll buy you any car on the face of the earth. Money's no object. What might you pick? <laughs> Man, you're speaking, you're speaking my language, big car guy here. So I was actually just looking one at the, on, on the internet the other day. I'm, I've always wanted a 1969 Mustang Boss 302. Big Mustang guy, like classic cars. There's no, to me, there's no substitute for the engine rumble and the smell of gasoline. It's been a car that I've always wanted since I was 16 years old. And you know, whether being practical or not, I think that would be my go-to. Not too expensive, but certainly it's, it's got some character. Yeah, and certainly more affordable than the '69 Boss 429, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I would if I had one of those. I don't know that I would drive it. It'd just be too too precious to to ruin from a day to day basis. You know, it's crazy. I have I uh, was at the Barrett Jackson auctions in Scottsdale last month, and uh, a client of mine has a second home there and he always has a big party and there's a whole bunch of car guys there and there was a guy who bought a like a 1980 nissan 280zx and he it was you know clean car straight he paid like 12 or 13 grand and the reason he bought that car primarily two reasons one like he had one in his younger days and it brought back good memories but the main reason was he has a collection of like 20 cars and most of them he can't drive because they're too valuable. So he bought that car mostly just so he'd have something he could drive around in. So I can appreciate uh, what you're saying. If you had a 429, you you wouldn't be able to drive it. I've always said like if you had a, a Shelby, a 427 Shelby Cobra, you'd have to also have a kit car version or a replica version to actually drive because you couldn't afford to drive the original. Yeah, it's 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 crazy because you know I'm I've always been that guy you know I consider myself a car guy and you know I've always said you know I drive it, but the 429 is just a car that there's not very many of them and you can't control what happens on the road you know and so if it just yeah. something unfortunately happens you're going you're taking one of those cars out of existence you know just for a little bit of fun I don't know it's just a it's that's a weird car because um, I you know all these high-end supercars and the, you know, the $3 million plus cars. I drive the heck out of one of those, but you know, that 429 would be a, that would be a garage car. Yeah. Just because, especially if it was an all original one, right? Yeah, I mean, that's right. Just, that's right. Cause you just can't uh, replace those. I mean, it'd be different if somebody had a 429 boss tribute car that started as a, you know, slant six 69 Mustang that they turned into, that'd be a different story. Once again, you'd have to have two 429s, right? An all original one (laughs) to stay in the garage and then a built one to, to, to drive. What, what might be your second choice? Oh, I, I really, I, I wouldn't say I'm a Ferrari guy, but the old classic Ferraris are this masterpieces they are beautiful you know 288 uh, gto would be would be my 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 second go-to but same uh, problem you couldn't drive it yeah i know but those are just gorgeous cars my brother-in-law has a a 356 and it's uh, you just 
you know, you go grab a beer and you sit in the garage and you just want to look at it because it's so beautiful. Yeah. The old Porsche, you're talking about the Porsche 356, yeah. right? Yeah. They just, for whatever reason, they just don't do much for me. They remind me of a Carmen Ghia and I just, and they, my wife's more of a, a Porsche file than I am, but yeah, I like the late sixties muscle car. I think for me, a, uh, a Jaguar XKE is, uh, as far as just, it's probably the only thing to me that rivals the Ferraris as far as just pure, just aesthetic beauty. I, I might put that up there. So, okay, we've talked about cars. So we're in Texas. I'm going to ask you a question. Just give me your gut answer, okay? Don't even think about it. Barbecue or Tex-Mex? Ooh, I'm going to say barbecue. Yeah? Yeah, you know, yeah, I'll go to I'll go to war with somebody who says that Memphis pork barbecue is better than Texas brisket barbecue. I am I am with you there. Now I do like their ribs. I do think they do a good job there. But the the pork sandwich with the coleslaw, just you know, it's okay. But so I asked that question to all my guests, and Tex Mex is usually the winner. But one of them said something so insightful. He said, it depends. If you tell me that the barbecue is going to be, that, that either option was world-class, I would take the barbecue. He said, if you told me that, that, you know, there were two restaurants to choose from and they both have average caliber food, he said, I would take the Tex-Mex because it has more tolerance for mediocrity than the barbecue. <laughs> it's so well said. It's uh, it's hard to screw up, you know, Tex-Mex, but it's easy to screw up. And sure. Yeah. Done it myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we all have. Well, Dylan, this has really been, been fun. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? You know, I, I you, it was a good, great, good conversation. I don't think so. I appreciate this time. It was fun. Yes, it, it was for me. So, well, thank you for uh, for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed it. And I think the listeners are going to get a, a lot out of it. Cool. I appreciate that. All right. Have a great day. You too, sir. And there we have it. Another great episode on the Christine Spray Show. Don't forget to check out the show notes at christinespray.com. And you can find out more about how we can be a resource to you at strategiccatalystinc.com. All the best in your continued success until the next time we talk.